Everybody enjoying the spring weather? Yes. It is quite nice. I'm going to open this window. I'm sorry, Liz. <laughs> but it's far enough away. Oh, look. Oh, Grange, why have you forsaken me? There we go. All right. Thank you. <laughs> so how is everyone? It's a little warm in here. Did, did John mention the uh, youth meeting after? I was downstairs playing with the children. Well, let's get into it. Chapter 7, John. Huh? I didn't. Oh, right. Ha, 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 ha. I'm going to shut this off for now. Powering off. We are moving right along at a snail's pace through the Gospel of John. It's taking us a while, but that's okay, because after that we have all of this left to go. So uh, we have enough stuff for years and years. John chapter... You know, I'm going to pray first, and and then I will read. God, we want to give you the glory this morning. I want to thank you for um, prayers answered. And God, we're going to hold on to you for um, the prayers that, that have yet to be answered. We're going to continue to press in on these things, God, because you tell us, you tell us in your word to knock and to seek and to ask. And so we're knocking and we're seeking and we're asking. And uh, we're looking to you to show yourself strong. So God, I know that we come through this door uh, with, with the weight of, of life upon us. And, and some of that is joy and some of that is just uh, dread and, and hurt. So God, I pray that wherever we are this morning, that your word will, will speak to us that uh, you will minister in our hearts personally, right where we need to, right where we need it, God. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, John, chapter 7, verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they were trying to kill? He is here speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? Now remember, Jesus, he is teaching at the Festival of Tabernacles, and he is moving around in the crowd, and he shows up, and he's in the temple in the most public place, and he is speaking, and he is preaching to the people. Now what's interesting in chapter 7 is there's, there's like three different crowd or three different groups of people that are listed here first you have the jews and the jews are the religious leaders these are the people that well they want to arrest jesus they really want him dead um he is he is pushing against their their religion he is breaking the rules he's breaking the traditions they don't like it enough is enough they're figuring out how to kill him and then you have a group they're they're in this in this gospel they're called the crowd and the crowd would be People who have come to the festival that may have traveled far from far distances, maybe other towns, other cities, and definitely other countries. Now, these people, they're a little different. They, they haven't heard too much about Jesus. They're not really um, in tune with his teachings or what's really been going on. And so they're just, they're just almost hearing him for the first time. And these are the people that are just amazed at the way he's teaching and they don't really know what's going on between him and, and the religious leaders, the, the tension that's there. And so they're just kind of, they're there and they're finding all this out, 
for the first time. And then in this text, you see that there are some of the people from Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites. Now, these are people that would, would have lived there, and these, they, they know what's going on. They know that there's tension between the leaders and Jesus. They've heard the rumors. They know the plot to kill him. But they're not the instigators of it. They just, they just kind of know what's going on. They know that there's tension. They know that there's something going on, and, and they're curious. Like, why, why isn't anybody taking any action? I mean, I mean, here he is. He's right here. And all of this talk that's been going on about the, the leaders trying to get this guy and arrest him and, and catch him in, in breaking the laws. They're, they're trying to get him and kill him. They're not doing anything. And, and here, is, here is Jesus. And so they're kind, of, they're kind of scratching their heads a little bit. And most of these people, they're very impressed by this guy, Jesus, how he speaks how he moves through the crowd. I mean, he's teaching with, with authority. And people are amazed at his teaching. And he's teaching openly. He's not mincing words. He is laying it down in front of the people who want to kill him. It would seem that something as insignificant as a little death threat would not keep Jesus from speaking the words that God put on his heart or his purpose to speak. Nothing is going to stop him. And I guess, well, that's kind of impressive in someone. And so then the question gets a little deeper for these people. They said, well, well isn't, isn't this the guy they want to kill? And then they say, wait a minute. Is, do, do the leaders now think or believe that he is the Messiah? Have, have they changed their mind? And the answer, the answer is no. They, they haven't changed their mind. And so Jesus, he's, he's making some really large claims. He's doing amazing signs and wonders. He teaches with authority. He is not afraid of the religious leaders. And he's got this whole Messiah claim thing going on. And the people are like, what is going on? They want to kill him. He's right here. They're not doing anything. Do they, do they believe now that, that he is the Messiah? Verse 27. But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. They're having a difficulty with this idea that maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe the religious leaders are thinking he's the Messiah. But, but we know where he's from. We know the town he was born in. Some of them even know his family. And, and there's a, there was a common belief not a universal belief, but a common belief in Judaism that when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. He will just appear suddenly, and, and where he came from and his family lineage, no one will really know. But it wasn't universally held, because you see in chapter 2 of, of Matthew, when Herod asked the scribes, where's the Messiah being born? They answer him. But they don't know family. They don't know specifics. But there's a general there's a general sense that, that, yeah, we'll know where he's from. Now, understand that it was a very common belief that Messiah will just appear. With no warning, with no, with no buildup, he will just suddenly appear, almost like Jesus just has in the temple and began to preach during this festival. That was a very common Jewish belief. And all of a sudden, the miracles and the signs and the wonders would just begin. 
And so, so there's, there's this confusion and there's these back and forth arguments in the minds of the people. Why, why are they not arresting him? There's this big plan to have him arrested and nothing is being done about it. Uh, do, do they think he really is the Messiah? Well, no, he can't be the Messiah. We know, we know who he is. And so there's this uncertainty swirling around what's taking place. And this is Jesus' response. Verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus, he knows what's going on. He hears the murmuring. He knows the hearts of the people. And so he stands up and he yells, he shouts. He wants to make sure people hear him. He wants to make sure that he has their attention. And he cries out, you know me? You know where I'm from? A little sarcastically. And the people, they do, they do really know where he is from. They know his family, but they are missing the deeper point. They have no idea where he's from. They have no idea who has sent him. And this is the point he's trying to make. Remember verse 16. My teaching is not my own. It's from the one who sent me. And now he is telling the people, my mission is not my own. I did not come here on my own initiative. I did not come here in my own accord, but I have been sent. I have been sent with a purpose. And this is very important to understand because these people don't believe that Jesus has been sent. They don't believe that his teaching and they don't believe that his mission is divine. In their minds, he's just this crazy, wacko rabbi who happens on the scene preaching all this kingdom of God stuff, but doing some really cool things. And they're really not sure what to think about him. And he says, you know what? You're missing it. The one who sent me is true. The one who has sent me is real. And you don't even know who he is, because if you knew who he was, you would know who I am. If the people knew who God was, if the people understood the things of God, then they would understand and know who Jesus is. Jesus, in existence with the Father, gets his marching papers and comes to earth to save us all. He was sent. Verse 30. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Well, Jesus had a great way of just rubbing the leaders wrong. And this, this is no exception. He he has raised the hackles on the back of their neck. He has aggravated them. And now they want to go and they want to seize him. They want to arrest him. Enough is enough. Let's get this guy. But God is God and no one is going to stop the purposes of God from taking place. Doesn't matter who you think you are. Doesn't matter who they thought they were. Nothing is going to stop the purposes of God from taking place. And I love the text that says, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Now, did you ever, you ever think about that for just a second? So here's Jesus, right? He's, at this, he's in this crowd and he's, he's yelling and people are hearing him. And there's all these, this drama going on around him. And they go to seize him and no one lays a hand on him. Like, what happened? Like, did he, 
just disappear? Like, where'd he go? Imagine just like reaching out and that person's gone. Or did like, did God change his looks so they couldn't recognize him anymore? And he just kind of sashayed out of the whole crowd. Did Jesus sashay? Maybe not. He just walked out of the whole crowd. Or did he just like hightail? Let's go, boys. We got to get out of here. Things are getting intense. He just hightailed it out. We really don't know. But for me, I get curious about those things. But we really don't know. But whatever, however, Jesus' hour had not yet come. And he leaves. And no one laid a hand on him. So all of this going on in the middle of this very holy festival in the Jewish tradition, the the, the, uh, festival of tabernacles. And in spite of the drama, in spite of the controversy, it says that some in the crowd have put their faith in him. Some in the crowd have began to consider him to be true. Some of those crowds have decided to follow him. Now, their faith is not a deep faith. It's not a very profound faith. It's based on Jesus' performance. It's based on his miracles. They ask the question, well, is is the Messiah going to do more than this guy does? And so, based on his performance, Jesus' performance, and they have no better, they don't have any other option to go with. They decide, yeah, okay, I can buy into this. That is not a deep faith. It's not a very profound faith. Well, notice in the Gospel of John, we'll see it over and over again, that um, any faith is better than no faith at all. And there's this sense of, of even faith based on miracles, faith based on proof is better than no faith at all. It's like any faith will do. And regardless of, of how these people got to believe, they're not condemned or they're not ridiculed. Faith, faith is faith, right? It is by grace we have been saved through faith. And it takes faith to please God. And, and faith is, is a gift from God. But how much faith is enough faith? I mean, how much faith do you need to get the grace to get saved? And how much faith actually pleases God? And, well, if, if God gives faith, then why not just give everybody lots of faith? Wouldn't the world be a better place? Wouldn't churches be a much better place if God just went, boom? There you go. That's all you need. Take it away. That's what I'm thinking. So how much faith is enough faith? In my travels as, as a pastor, um, even, even in, in the church circles around, you know, locally and across the world, across Europe, I have found that um, churches, we, we want people to become Christian. We do. But we want people to become certain types of Christians. We want people to be Christians like we're Christians. And so for us, it would be like, we want people to be Oasians, not necessarily just Christians, okay? We want people to engage faith the way we engage faith. We want people to kind of look like the way we look like. I mean, if you come here in a suit and tie, I would have to ask you to leave. But, but no, I'm just saying. <laughs> but, but, you know, no, I wouldn't do that. i just tell you to dress better next week. That's all. Um, so, but, but we want people to engage it the way that we do, and all churches are like this, that we want, we want their, their faith to, to, look like, to look like our faith. And we, we judge people by faith. I know we say, oh, no, we don't. Well, yes, we do. We, we know people who have, like, we, we would consider have a really big faith or people that have 
have no faith at all are people with childlike faith. Amen. And, and we judge that, and we have, we have certain, certain ideas about them in our head. And then there's those people that, that have all of that faith, and they'll pray over sick people, and the people don't get well, and they say, well, you must not have enough faith. Well, those people just need a poke in the eye. But anyway, so, but, but that's just me. Um, but but we, we just like throw faith around in church world. I would say that we all ebb and flow within our faith. And I, and I hope that, that we're flowing more than we're ebbing, but we all, we all go through these times of just like, and then times where we're just curled up in a ball in the corner and not understanding it. That's, that's the reality of life. And many of us are just like this crowd who put their faith in Jesus. Many of us, our faith grows when we see the activity of God in our life. Okay, so maybe it's not miracles, but when we see God move, it, it strengthens our faith, right? And so we can't deny, we can't look down on our nose at these people like, yeah, they needed a miracle. You know what? So do we. We need to see God move. In evangelical worlds, we're always talking about faith. Gotta have faith. Gotta have faith. I tell people all the time, you know, when they're going through something hard, listen, just keep the faith. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. But the Bible says that faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Or, or, or faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell that tree, you know what, tree, you need to move over there. And that tree will uproot itself. I don't know, walk over there maybe. I don't know how it's going to get there, float, woo, and, and then plant itself in the grounds. How much faith fits into a mustard seed? I mean, is it really dense and you fit a lot of it in there? I mean, I, mean, I, don't, I don't get it. And so we always, we just kind of throw it around. And, and the opposite of faith, is doubt. Oh, Christian, you should never doubt. Doubt is the opposite of faith. And if you doubt, that means you have little faith. And remember, remember, it takes faith to please God. And if you doubt, that means you don't have any faith. That means you are not pleasing God. You know, I disagree. I disagree wholeheartedly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this text into a little bit of a direction that maybe it wasn't intended to, but So I'm going to have some liberty with it. But I hope you'll understand because as I was, I was reading this over on, on Monday evening, it was late, and I'm just reading through um, what it says in the Bible. Then I just picked up a commentary, and this just, it just hit me how we followers of Jesus just wrestle with doubt, and we're ashamed of it. And we're told you need to have faith, you need to have faith, you need to have faith, and if you doubt, it's wrong. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith, I believe, is indifference. And so, and so we, we have this, this, this doubts in us, and we're afraid to voice them to our brothers and sisters because, oh man, if they only knew what I doubted. Let me tell you, if you guys knew the doubts that I wrestle with in this book, you would fire me and hire somebody else, all right? Be- because it's not easy. And so we're going to just spend some time talking about faith and doubt. I mean, can you experience God in doubt? 
And, and, and is doubt a part of faith? And if doubt's a part of faith, then, then any faith is a good faith, right? I mean, some faith is better than no faith at all, even if it has doubt in it. Maybe? You know, the definition of faith is this. It's, um, it's a conviction of truth or a belief. Now, let's bring that into church world. The definition of faith within our church world is a belief Um, respecting our relationship with God. It's how you perceive and how you believe your relationship with God is. Many a great man and woman of faith have gone through periods of their journey where they feel God is just not there. God, he is gone. He's not listening. He's not speaking. And they feel so desperately alone. Mother Teresa, her story is amazing. You know Mother Teresa, right? She did like uber awesome stuff, all right? And this woman died of old, in, in her old age and just changed the world. When she was a young girl, she, she felt the calling of God in her life. God spoke to her audibly, and she just felt his presence. It was this, this, this amazing, joyous time. But after that, for the rest of her life, she had never experienced the presence of God. God was silent to her for the rest of her life. She described it as the dark night of her soul. Years and years and years and years. That has to fester some doubt. She lived her entire life in spiritual dryness. Like, like God, was, God was not there. He wouldn't show up. And, and it's amazing if you read some of these people who have written, um, you know, these giants of the faith that have written about their times of, of uh, the dark night of the soul, you'll find that as they've come through the other side of it, they grew deeper and more intimate in their relationship with God than they ever had before. Now, I know that we can understand a faith that's based on miracles. You know what? If I come up to somebody, and, or if, if, I'm, if I'm sick with a terminal disease and somebody comes and they pray over me and they lay hands on me and they, they say, in the name of Jesus, be healed, and I get healed, I got some faith going on right there. I'm believing Faith in the context of doubt? Really? I know some of you might be thinking, all right, Dennis, you're stepping up to the line. You're about ready to cross it. You've come pretty close before. Maybe now you're going to go over. Maybe now I will. But can we experience God in doubt? Let me tell you a story. Um, when Ethan, my son, he was about, I don't know, I think he was about four years old, three or four years old. You know, kids have to go to doctor's appointments. And um, they just go for checkups, and they go, they measure their weight, they measure their height, they make sure, you know, they graph it on the little graph, you know, and he's always up there. And part of this appointment was um, he had to have a, be tested for lead. So they take the little finger prick thing, and they prick the end of his finger. And um, they check him, you know, they took the little, well, whatever they did. And uh, that didn't go over very big, all right? He's not a big fan of somebody taking a needle into the end of his finger and pop, you know, and blood comes out. He's just not a big fan. Um, so, but, but what I knew, but what he did not know is things were going to get much worse for him, okay? And, 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 and it wasn't like I lied to him. I did not lie. He didn't ask any questions. Now, him being our second child, I've learned that you never volunteer information about the doctor. 
If they don't, it's, a, it's a don't ask, don't tell policy, right? If they're not asking questions, you don't, hey, you're going to get, you know, whatever it is. And so I'm not saying anything, and I'm feeling pretty good about not lying because I didn't, you know, volunteer the information. Um, and so we get there, and, and I know that he's getting four shots, okay? He's going to get two in each arm. He has no idea, but, but I know. And, and I know this is not going to go well. And, and so I can see the needles. And, you know, now as I think back, you know, they were this big, you know, on the tray. <laughs> but, but I can see them, and I'm just like, oh. And he has, he has no idea. He has no idea this is coming. And our doctor, Dr. Alonzo, he's just like, he's so amazingly cool. He's like the grandfather type. You just want to hug every time you see him. I mean, he's so cool. So he's going through, and he's checking them out, and he's squeezing and, you know, popping them on the kneecaps and doing all this stuff and touch your finger and count to three or whatever. And, um, he gets through and says, oh, Ethan, you are, you're a healthy young boy. He goes, now, now I have to give you some shots. All right, so now those examining rooms, you know, they're like maybe two of these long and maybe that wide. They're, they're really small. And there's Ethan. He's sitting on, on the big table, um, and, it, and it's, it's really tall because he has to climb up on the chair to get up on the table, and you can't lift him on the table. He's got to climb up there because that's cool. So he's sitting there, and his little feet are dangling. He's thinking, man, he's golden. He's got the finger prick. He, you know, everything is done. And he says, Ethan, I need to give you some needles. Well, his eyes just went pop, and he looked at me, and, and that boy jumped off that table and hightailed it towards the door. I mean, like instantaneously, he swings the door open. And this is, I mean, this is like in, right in front of me. It took, I, by the time I grabbed him by the arm, he was halfway out the door. He was on his way, man, gone. So I drag him back in. He is kicking and he's screaming and he does not want this to happen. And he is crying and he's yelling, no, no, please stop, stop. And I'm just like... And now I have to hold him, and I'm holding him like across my body with his chest against mine, one arm up, right? And the doctor comes over. He goes, you know, don't worry, Ethan. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. He's not the one getting the four needles. And so um, I rem- I'll never forget the look on his face um, as he's crying, he's kicking and screaming when that first needle went into his arm. He just, he just looked at me, and he stopped crying. It was more like a, uh, you know, and, and I could see I could see the question in his face. Why are you letting him do this to me? You're my dad. You're supposed to protect me, and you're holding me here and letting this guy jam metal into Maybe he wasn't thinking that part, but, but anyway, I was. It, you're, he's, he's sticking needles into my arm. You're, you're, you're my dad. I thought you loved me. I can just, maybe I was reading too much into it, but, but this face of just like he was looking at me, te- uh, eyes filled with tears. Now, at that point, I got tears rolling down my face, and I'm just like, and that was the first needle, man. There's like three more to go. Another one in that arm, I got to flip the dude over, and these actors got to grab the other one. And it was just like this traumatic, traumatic experience. In that moment, in that moment, <laughs> after that, the doctor puts him up on, on, on the thing. You know, okay, Ethan, we got to get dressed now. And he gives him a hug. And Dr. Lobson comes over and gives me a hug. He goes, you did good, Dad. I'm like, oh, can I have a volume, please? You know, I'm like, you know, all wigging out. <laughs> but anyway, so he didn't give me one. Don't worry. We had beer at the pub. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, <laughs> but, but I, remember, um, I remember thinking, my son, my son in that moment doubted that I loved him. My son doubted that I was looking out for his best interest. Dads don't do that. Dads don't let their kids like go through something that traumatic and then hold them down while it's happening. My son 
doubted. And that was, that was heartbreaking for me. I mean, I had tears rolling down my face. And I wonder, I wonder if that's the way God feels about us. You know, we, we go through times of disappointment and frustration and anger and fear and pain. And, and um, there's things in this life that we just have absolutely no control over at all. And I believe it's in those times that God somehow draws near. And then there's, then there's the times that, that God just holds on to us during those really hard times, those times that, that he's going to let us go through for whatever reason, and they're not fun, but he holds on to us. And we're kicking, and we're screaming, and we're yelling, and we're doubting, and we're shaking our fists. And he lets us because he knows that's what we need to do that time. Ethan was not yelling at the doctor. Ethan was not trying to kick the nurse. Ethan was not angry with them at all. He never expected anything from them. But he expected something from me. You see, I'm his dad. And he made it very clear to me. He was very, very upset with the way I handled that situation. It was his love for me and our relationship that made him doubt I loved him. And so within our father-son relationship, because he loved me, he doubted me. And what I'm finding as I walk this journey of faith, that it's my very, sometimes it's my very love of God. Sometimes it's the fact that I have faith in him and I have a relationship with him. It's those very things that at times make me doubt my faith. You know, we like to clearly define our faith, make it all nice and very tidy and make it very comfortable. But that's, that's just not faith. I mean, maybe that's the way God initially attended it to be, but that's not what it is now. Faith is messy and it's hard. We're li- we are broken people living in a broken world. And faith is not nice and tidy in in a nice little box. These people that Jesus is speaking to, their faith feels pretty good right now. They're like, oh, miracle, ta-da, faith, I feel pretty good. And that's not going to last very long for them. They have no idea what they've gotten themselves into because faith is never easy. Faith you just can't put into a numbered system or a checklist. If there's a book out there that says how to strengthen your faith in seven easy steps, don't buy it because it's a waste of money. And if there's not a book out there yet, it will be. But faith doesn't work that way. And God knows And God knows that it doesn't work that way. And God knows that it's hard. And God knows that we question. And God knows that we doubt. And God knows that we just don't understand it. And it's in those times that he calls us and woos us and holds us so tight against his chest. Now, I believe for many of us, um, we put our faith in our faith and not in God. I understand that faith is God's gift to me, and he, he gives it to me. He, he increases my faith. I understand that. And I understand that faith is not just to be lived out in private, but it's, it's, it's a public thing. But I also understand this, that faith is very, very personal. 
And my faith, my, my faith is the way I see life. My faith is the way I engage life. My faith um, is formed by the things that I read and the experiences that I have and the people that I know and, 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 and their experiences that they have and how I interact with all these other people outside of the faith and inside of, of the faith. And that's how my faith is formed. It's not just formed in a vacuum. It's not just a pill. It's not just a needle. All of these experiences that I have gone through in my entire life have brought me to the faith that I have right now. All of the experiences that each one of you have gone through in your entire life have brought you to the faith that you have right now. And so you know what that makes? My faith makes it imperfect. It, it makes it at best incomplete. It makes it inaccurate. You see, I can doubt my faith and not doubt God. I need to doubt my faith because if faith is my relationship with God and how I understand it and how I see it, then if I question it and doubt it, it allows it to grow. It allows it to deepen. It allows it to become something that it wasn't, hopefully something stronger it needs to be corrected. It needs to be worked on. Proverbs say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Have you put your faith in your faith? And have you, have you put your faith in how you understand God and how you believe God should work and how you believe how you think he, who he is and how he should be doing the things that you have asked him to do? Many people say, oh, I just... I just live my life by what the Bible says. No, you don't. You live your life by how you interpret what the Bible says. And is your interpretation correct? And you're basing your life on it. Or is your faith in God? The unchanging, the everlasting, and the perfect. When you begin to doubt your own understanding, that opens up the door for you to begin to lean on God. I mean, have you, have you ever prayed, have you ever prayed this prayer? God, I don't know what's happening right now. And I don't like it. I don't understand life. And you know what? I don't even understand you. All of the things that I thought you were have just been dashed. And, and I just don't get it. I don't understand it anymore. Maybe you've, maybe you've shaken your fist like, like Ethan did to me. And just like, what are you doing? But then you come back to, but I know you're my dad. And I know, that, I know that you can do everything. I get that. And, and God, I'm, I'm asking you for help. I'm asking you that, that in the pain that I'm experiencing right now, would you please help me? Would you please, I, I believe, I do believe, but help me in those places that I don't. Help me in those places that I doubt. Help me in my unbelief. And, and when I pray that way, and, and I do, I pray in those ways. Man, I tell you, I feel weak, and I feel feeble, and I feel desperate. And I don't feel very pastoral. But I wonder if prayers that come from those places come from a place of faith. That prayers come that come from doubt and confusion 
and not understanding are actually coming from places of faith. It's our relationship with God that allows us to question and doubt. Those prayers come from a place of us giving up control, not trying to seize it all the time. I'll be honest, me, I like to keep one hand on the steering wheel. I know God's got both hands. He's working the gas pedal. He's got the brake. Windshield wipers are his. Radio's mine. But I like to have one hand on the steering wheel. And, and that's just me. And I'm learning, I'm learning how to let go. I'm learning that he has got the wheel. And sometimes I grab it and I hold on. Oh, no, let me just take this, God. I got this one. And other times I'm learning to let go. And when I let go, there's that part of me that's like, are you sure? There's a part of me that doubts. But does that come from a place of just, you have no faith? Or does that come from a place of, you're my dad and, and I don't get it, but I'm going to let you do what you're going to do because I'm not going to put faith in my faith. I'm going to put faith in your God. And that's a scary place to be. That's not an easy place to be. Ain't no book written about that that's worth its weight. It's a hard, hard place to be. You know, someone once said that you will never know your faith is real until that's all you have left. Be honest, I never want to get to that place. That sounds like a really hard, terrible place to be. I don't want to be there. And so these people that Jesus is speaking to, some put their faith in him. And and by by religious standards, it's a shallow faith. It's not deep at all. But I wonder, I wonder if that's the way God feels. As we celebrate communion today, I would like you all to begin to think about your relationship to God as, as your dad, not as this there's this big old guy up there that's just waiting to thump on you when you mess up. Not some guy up there that's just, just you know, yeah, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But as your dad, and, and maybe some of you haven't had a good relationship with your dad. Think of Cliff Huxtable then as, as God, okay? Like, like the perfect dad, he can fix anything in 30 minutes and then hug you at the end. And, and so I'm serious. I know that sounds weird, but too often we project our own earthly fathers onto our heavenly father. And they're not the same. There's a God that loves you beyond what you can ever imagine. There's a God that cares for you beyond what you can ever, ever get and understand in your head. And so as we take communion together, um, begin, begin that dialogue of saying, God, help me in my unbelief. But here's what I don't want you to do. If you doubt something right now in your walk, if you're having trouble understanding, don't, don't, feel, don't look down on yourself. Don't feel guilty. God loves a good question. He does, he's a big God. He can take it, I'm telling you. And so ask him. Ask him to begin that work that only he can do in you so that you can come from a place of, of leaving that doubt behind and just getting to the next one, really. And so by doing so, your faith can deepen.